Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hey guys, today on the show, we've got Axel Ragnarsson with us. He is a real estate investor, commercial real estate broker uh, with a multifamily focus and uh, also has a, a property management company and lots of other um, real estate related things I want to dig into here, but I don't want to tell too much of the story without further ado. Axel, welcome. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Doing, doing great. Doing great. We got a, this is the first day of cold weather in San Antonio, Texas this year. So we're talking like mid-September and everybody's <laughs> all uh, fired up about putting a jacket on for the first time this year. It's pretty good. What is, what is cold weather considered in, uh, in San uh, Antonio? 60 degrees this morning. 60 degrees. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I live in, uh, I live in Boston, Massachusetts. So 60 degrees. Um, I'll take oh. that any, any time of the year. <laughs> yeah. I bet. I funny. bet. Okay. So we're in September. Like what's Boston look like right now? It, you don't have snow piled up on the sidewalks yet, right? Not yet. We've actually had a pretty warm summer. Um, this weekend was, was nicer than it usually is in September. We were still in the seventies here in, uh, nice. in, in mass, but, um, you know, come October 1st, you know, we're, we're down to the fifties and sixties, you know, all the way up until May. So, well, I mean, obviously it gets colder in December, January, but that's, uh, our summer's coming to an end, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm that sure. Is. I'm sure I was, I was in Boston. I've been, you know, go there occasionally over the years and I don't, can't remember what month it was, but you know, the snow was piled up six feet high on the, yeah. on the sidewalks. That's Stay crazy. away in December, January, and February. It's a, it's a <laughs> bad time to visit. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, I've got some friends and some business partners in Boston um, that are multifamily investors, but they kind of tend to focus on other markets. Uh, is that the case with you? Or are you guys like buying and, and managing stuff in, in your backyard there? Sure. So I can give the, I'll give the brief backstory on, on, um, on the markets we're in and what we're doing. Um, awesome. I originally grew up in New Hampshire, which is the, the state that borders Massachusetts to the North. Um, so I, I specifically grew up in a town that's right over the border. It's like 45 minutes North of Boston. Um, and I went to college in New Hampshire, then moved down to Boston after I graduated. And uh, all of our real estate business right now is in New Hampshire. Um, uh -huh. So specifically a city called Manchester. So it's sure. central New Hampshire, hour, hour, 10 minutes north of Boston. So I'm like right on that borderline of, you know, or I guess, it, you know, investing in your backyard is a, is a relative term based on how willing you are to drive around. Um, sure. So for me, it's familiar because I grew up in, you know, grew up in the area uh, first, you know, 22 years of my life were there. And, um, and it's still easy for me to get up there, look at property. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a plane ride. So, so, you know, more or less in our backyard and we've been buying, you know, small to mid-sized multifamily properties up there, um, you know, distressed properties and renovating them, renting them out. You know, that's, that's mainly been our business model and, uh, and the business over the last couple of years has kind of grown to the point to where we can kind of bring some of the services in house, like property management, you know, you mentioned briefly at the, at the top of the call here, um, so, you know, we are investing locally in the Northeast. However, you know, next step is we're looking in some, you know, Midwestern and Southeastern markets where I have a couple of business partners that have ventured off and started doing business elsewhere, you know, where the price per unit is a little bit lower. So right at that cusp right now is, is, uh, is where we're looking to go into some other markets, uh, specifically some in Alabama and some in Arkansas um, are the two that, um, that we're looking at right now. Um, Texas is a little too competitive for us, although I love the Texas markets. Um, but, uh, it seems like, you know, start somewhere where there's a little less competition and, and, and start to develop, you know, the processes about, 
just behind getting out of state and, and actually building that infrastructure, which is, you know, kind of what we're doing right now. Yeah. Now that makes sense. Would you guys, what's the, what's the thought process behind the management company when let's say you're going out of state, you know, is it third party there locally or are you going to expand the management company, you know, right alongside expanding the portfolio? I'm I'm sure we'll be using third party when we, when we go out of state. Um, An individual that I work with, he owns roughly 40 units or so um, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he's got a 28 unit building and some, you know, small to mid-sized buildings. He's at the point where he's looking to scale into something that's 80, 90 plus units. Um, that's what I'm looking to do personally. Some, something that's 50, 60 plus to where there's some level of scale there, even if it doesn't justify, you know, somebody on site, it's sure. At least we're, we're getting in and kind of making it worth the plane ride, so to speak. Um, which is a whole, that's, you know, that's, that's another conversation, I guess, but, um, we'll certainly use third-party management with the goal of bringing it in house, you know, once we get to the threshold where it makes sense, the thought process locally was, you know, Hey, we, we can start a management company that actually outcompetes the other management companies in our area. Um, you know, I'm not involved in the day-to-day management of the management company because I think I'd be tearing my hair out of my head if that was the case. But, sure. um, but, um, you know, so it was a question of, okay, it makes sense to vertically integrate and manage your own buildings, but we think we can do it better than the other companies that are, that are operating in the area. So it's kind of a, you know, somewhat of a profit center for us locally, although the, the goal really is to have a better control of our actual, uh, the management of our own buildings, you know, but obviously going out of state, you got to get to a point to where it's, it's manageable to do that. And, you know, building a business out of state obviously has a challenges in itself. So that's something that we'd probably look to do down the line, but, but not initially, I wouldn't think. Yeah, that makes sense. It's always kind of a balancing act, but you do get that level of control with being vertically integrated. And that mm-hmm. is a, uh, it certainly outweighs the, you know, I guess the profit motive. I mean, nobody really goes into property management to, to make uh, piles of, of cash, but if you can control your NOI better, then, you know, the, the result's going to be good for, for you and your investors. I want to take a step back, Axel. You, you got into your first property in college. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I can give the, the spark notes on that. So I, I was in high school and uh, late high school, early college. I was, I was flipping cars on Craigslist. That was like my side hustle way to make a nice. couple of bucks. How, and, do, you, how um, do you get a spread on a car? Well, like, there's no, <laughs> you don't like add any value to it, right? You're just looking for the, the, the next sucker or how does that? Motivated sellers, you know, same as real oh, okay. estate. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I was, uh, I'd buy, I'd go on Craigslist. I had Kelly blue book up on one window, Craigslist up on the other window and, um, would just cross reference prices and send out a bunch of offers, you know, buy a car that was worth six grand for four grand and go out there and sell it for six grand. And yeah, nice. it's kind of like real estate. You make a lot of offers, you, you know, you put some time into it. And, um, so it was, I mean, it was, it was good money. It was a good little side hustle and, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. But at the, you know, at some point I was like, all right, what can I do that's bigger than this? Um, so I, I got into the business through the lens of, or through the, with the goal of flipping houses. Um, and then I, you know, started researching real estate and, and realized that, um, you know, buying rental real estate or multifamily real estate, some kind of passive income was probably a, was a better strategy, you know, do the work once and, and get paid in perpetuity was a, was a pretty good deal, I thought. So um, started looking at multis and that, you know, long story short, ended up working with a private lender that I met through a college internship to buy a three unit um, when I was in college. I was 21 and found the deal on Craigslist and, uh, and financed it with a private money lender and added some value and, you know, went to go refinance it a year later, which is a whole nother story. But uh, being 21 with like awful tax returns and no W2 income, couldn't really find a bank to, to take me out on the back end or to take the private lender out, I should say. 
Um, so I ended up selling that. And that was, that was like my first deal was, was trying to do the burst strategy that, you know, has become pretty popular online. And, uh, I ended up selling that one, but, uh, but then just started, you know, rolling that into more and more properties. And, you know, that was four or five years ago now. Nice. So that private lender took down the whole debt stack and, and the equity. I mean, it was, it was just this guy, the private lender taking down all of the cash requirement to, to pick up their property. So he did 95% loan to value, um, nice. just on a first position, you know, 10% interest, one points at closing type of loan. Sure. Um, so it wasn't anything that was too out of the ordinary. And, um, you know, I brought the remaining 5% uh, required to close, which is, you know, almost every dime I had. Um, and then I, you know, basically it, it wasn't a major rehab project. So, you know, the cash flow could kind of support the renovations or at least fund the renovations. So, um, you know, I had a tenant leave and, you know, again, paid for that renovation with every dime out of my pocket and, and kind of scraped and clawed and, you know, got to the finish line in terms of turning that building around and, and turning it into a stabilized property. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I, you know, it, it's funny because I think a lot of people ask me like, well, how did you bring like no money down? And I was like, well, I, I didn't bring no money down. I still had to bring some to put down. You know, I wasn't a hundred percent financed, like, and he also financed the renovations. You know, it wasn't any grand slam deal like that. But I, you know, I had some money in the bank from what I did the, the previous few years and, you know, making money here and there and, you know, flipping the cars and doing other side hustles. And, and, you know, that was how I kind of funded that first deal. Yeah. Outstanding. I love it. You know, once you kind of step outside, I mean, a lot of people have this idea of real estate that it, you just kind of get a bank loan and buy a house. And that might be some people's extent of their real estate experience, but there's this whole other world of, of private equity, private lending. Um, you know, when I discovered that private lending world early on doing this, it, it, it like changed my life, you know? I mean, people are happy to get 10, 10% in a point all day long. Oh yeah. And it took me a few years to realize like, Oh, there's a lot of people out there with that. They're, the problem is what do I do with all this cash? And it sounded silly to me starting out cause I didn't start out with any money. I couldn't fathom that that was somebody's problem, but there's a whole lot of people out there. That's their problem. What do I do with this cash? You know, I, I don't want to lose principal. I don't want to make 1%. Uh, I don't want to swing for the fences on some stock that could triple or could lose all my cash. You know, where, where can I, and 10% in a point, that's good money. You know, if somebody's got some investable capital and it's collateralized and they trust the operator. And so there's kind of like an unlimited amount of that money out there. You just yeah. have to connect the dots. Um, so that's and, I, awesome. and I'll jump in too, because I want to, I want to, I really agree with what you're saying. And it was a big mindset like shift for me or, or just, yeah. a, I, I didn't view the business that way. I always thought if someone was giving me a loan or investing in a deal, like early on in the first couple of years of me being in the business, I always thought that you know, they were doing me a favor, right? Like, like, yes, I was, you know, and, and once you realize that you're actually providing a great service to them in terms of offering an above average return on their money and something that is collateralized, you know, with real estate or, you know, maybe it's some other business, whatever it is, right. That's, there's so much value um, being provided to the individual who's writing you the check. Um, and I, I, I didn't look at the business that way. I always thought like, you know, they're doing, they're doing me a solid or, you know, how, how do I actually frame this to where it's beneficial to them? And then, you know, once you're in the business a while, you're like, you talk to enough people who are like, you know, I've, I've been making 4% in the stock market for six years and I'd love to make more. I just don't know what to do with the money that I have. Yes. And um, yeah, it, it really helps you raise more money and helps you view it in a different light. So that, I mean, that was a big challenge for me early on too. Yeah. I think that's kind of just a function of not having capital. And I remember the first guy that, you know, loaned me private money after doing hard money to get started. 
I couldn't believe somebody's giving me $150,000. Now they weren't giving it to yeah. me. You know, we had a company and it, we had the attorneys draw up the first lien and stuff. So it wasn't like he just handed me cash across the table, but um, I couldn't believe they were putting that amount of trust in me. And it felt like a huge favor for a long time. Right. Yeah. And then, and then yeah, you get used to it. You go, Oh, this is uh, this is an awesome return for this person. And it's a service. And, and um, that, that definitely is the framework to, to look at it through. And, Again, there's a whole lot of people out there with that problem of where to, where to place capital. So um, that's awesome. So th- that's, that's a, a, an awesome story about getting into a deal. Uh, you still needed to come up with some capital, but you can go out and do, you could do big deals. Um, what did it look like after that? I mean, was it, was it getting into bank loans on stuff? Did, had, had you, you know, considered getting into any syndications or how did the financing piece kind of progress after that first project? Yeah, absolutely. So um, right after that first deal, right after I bought it, you know, I was, again, I was 21. I was in my junior year of college. Um, I didn't have a full-time job and I, I just wasn't a financeable borrower really for for any traditional bank. So, sure. and I, I still, you know, four years later, I've been self-employed for, you know, since I graduated college, I still have a hard time going out and getting like one of those, you know, 30 year fixed rate loan, you know, we're assuming we're talking about one to four, but even the purchase of a commercial property, whether it's five plus, whatever the building is, you know, it's easier for me to get financing on those because they're lending on the asset really rather than the borrower. But um, there's still some challenges with my tax returns being pretty wonky and my, my debt to income being a lot of whack with, uh, with the properties that I own, everything like that. So financing's always been a challenge for me. And like, especially back when I started, it was a huge challenge. So I, so going out and getting a bank loan to buy a property just wasn't even an option for me. So it, it kind of made it easier for me. I had to go use private money or hard money um, to buy properties. And, you know, looking back, I think I bought a lot of properties initially in my career, you know, smaller multis with private money up front without really having an exit strategy in mind, which I, I obviously I wouldn't suggest that anyone does um, right. in terms of, you know, I was like, you know, we'll figure out the financing on the back. You know, maybe I can get one of those like asset based lenders, you know, those nationwide, you know, mid sevens rate, something like that. If all else fails, you know, I did have a good credit score because I'd been building credit for a few years. Um, so that was really how I approached the business was let's just, let's find discounted deals, you know, through off market prospecting, stuff like that. And, and then we'll close them with private money and we'll figure it out on the back end. We'll find some kind of longer term financing. And, uh, and that's what I did. So you know, the second year that I was doing this, you know, my senior college, I bought two properties and they were both small multifamilies. Um, I also had my license. I got my license. So I was working as an agent, making some money doing that. Nice. And it wasn't until I graduated that I really started to put like a full-time focus. And then, you know, third year, I bought 15 units. And then my fourth year, about 25 units. And it started to grow. And, you know, I, what I, what I think of that I, looking back, did a decent job doing early was really sharing what I was doing with everybody that I knew. And, um, and that brought a lot of private money to the table, whether it was like private money lenders or people that, you know, wanted to invest, you know, equity into a deal and, or were okay with leaving their money in for a longer period of time. So I started slowly building my access to capital and, you know, combined that with doing some intentional, you know, off-market prospecting, you know, doing direct mail, uh, going cold calling, going direct to seller through email or, you know, various methods of getting in front of sellers. And, um, started just finding off market deals that were 75, 80% of value where we had the opportunity to, to add some value. Um, and then I just kept kind of rolling that snowball. And uh, what I found on the back end was, 
you know, the way I figured out the financing was I, I exclusively started going to local banks and local credit unions, like, you know, small local banks with like three or four branches, like we're, you know, really on the smaller side and um, just getting in front of the VPs of their commercial lending departments, explaining what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I started getting commercial loans on all my properties, even if they were less than four units, um, mm. you know, when I was starting. So I realized quickly, I, I can't go and get a 30 year fixed rate loan on any of these because they're looking borrower first, you know, property second, and I'm not getting past the borrower underwriting because I, yep. I don't fit in their box. So started getting, you know, 25 year amortized, you know, 75, 80% loan to value, some kind of fixed rate for five, 10 years, a slightly higher rate. And, uh, and that's how I ended up refinancing out of all the, the initial private money that I had. And that's still pretty much what I do today, regardless of the size of the deal that we're doing. Um, you know, obviously once you go five plus, you, you, you need to go that route. But for me, that was the only way that I could get into the business. So I had to use the private money route because I wasn't a financeable individual anyways. So it, it made that process pretty easy for me. Like that was my only way to, to get into the business. Um, so, and then it was just a matter of building, you know, growing the lead funnel and, uh, and just finding the, the right opportunities to close on. That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes, um, those, those, um, might seem like a curse up front, this, this finance, you know, challenge, but when you don't have a choice, you go figure it out and, uh, make it work. And, and mm -hmm. there's something really nice about having a, a bench of private capital, you know, it, it basically like an unlimited line of credit. Now like it might cost you a little bit more. Um, but one of the things that helped me real early on was to just not worry about interest rates. You know, people, I see people that are new or not in the business get real hung up on interest rates. And it's like, who, who cares? You know, somebody told me a long time ago that access to capital is a lot more important than cost of capital, you know? So if you can go in and get in into a good deal at X percent, and yeah, there's going to be some kind of an exit or you're going to be able to swap out the debt at some point. But, you know, none of this happens if you don't get into the deal in the first place. So I think uh, that's a good tip. Yeah. Because yeah, good, good so many stuff people are like, the... you know, should I get a rate? Should I, should, you know, I'm getting quoted 4.75% and, you know, I know people that are getting four or high threes and, you know, that, that doesn't really move the needle too much, especially early in your career. Like at least mm -hmm. what I found, like you just, you gotta, you have to put properties on your balance sheet with a good equity position and, and it's just my goal was always like, I need to build a balance sheet so that I can go and, and be the co-signer on a, on a larger loan and, and get to that place sooner than later. So, you know, if I'm paying, you know, and I did some of those asset backed lenders, those nationwide lenders where I was paying, you know, I got a 30 year fixed rate at seven and a half percent, which is like not great, you know, in the grand sure. scheme of, of real estate, you know, mortgages. And, and um, but, uh, but at least I put the property on my balance sheet and I was able to, you know, benefit from the appreciation. And you know, there was still, it's still cash flow. It was still a safe investment. And, um, and for me, I just, you know, I need to, I need to build my portfolio so that when I go to a bank and give them my personal financial statement, that at least won't be the hurdle. Like that'll be the reason right. to lend rather than the reason right. against lending. Yep. And the whole time you're building experience, equity, all that stuff. You know, I tell people that, that as long as the deal works, I don't care. Interest rate could be anything, you know, the rehab could be anything. Um, as long as the kind of globally, you know, the deal pencils, uh, let's, let's go do it. You know? So exactly. uh, I love it. I love it. So I want to talk about the, the property management company that you started. You know, we, we did the same thing this year with a kind of similar premise, like, Hey, we're, we're paying out all these fees and we could, we could do this better and have more control. Um, what was that point for you when you decided it was time to spin up a property management company and were there, were there pain points that led to that or what, what took, what led you through that process? 
Sure. So this is a real recent thing for us. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, we started this over the summer, we started at, you know, height of quarantine, really. But, uh, but the, the reasoning for for starting it was, so it was kind of twofold. One, you know, I, I personally owned roughly 50 units myself in the market that, you know, I was investing in, I had a business partner that owns another 25 or so. So we were like, okay, you know, there's, there's scale here. And to give reference of what 50 units is, cause I think it's, you know, everywhere, everywhere is different. And you know, that unit count has to be different, I think in different markets for it to make sense. You know, we're, we're in a market that's hundred to 120 K a unit or so. Um, so, you know, a little for bit, what kind high, of vintage stuff, Axel, like what, what year would that be? 120 bucks or 120 K a unit. So, so we're in the Northeast, which is, you know, they, it's all ancient property. So we're all early 1900s built, um, wow. property. Everything I own is built 1910, you know, 1920. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, if we're talking something that's built eighties, nineties, like, you know, 150, 170 K unit for, for types of properties like that. And, and are these like 850 square feet, you know, one, one type stuff or. Yeah. So, so, you know, hundred K unit is typically going to be like a, a two bed, one bath, 950 square foot unit. Um, rent What's is 1200 bucks. That's typical yeah. for, for, for us up here. Um, so, you know, that's, it's probably similar to what price points you see in San Antonio. I mean, maybe not some of the more premium stuff that that's on the market, but you know, maybe some of the C plus class types of assets, you know, that's, I, I should, actually shouldn't say, I don't know. I'm not too familiar with the price points are in Texas, but it seems like it's in the same, We're, you know, 60 to hundred K a door range, which okay. is a pretty big range. But you know, yeah. if you're looking at 60s, 70s, 80s uh, construction, that's kind of where, where we're at with an average. I would, if I was just to shoot from the hip, I'm saying it's 85 K a door, you know, okay. that's, that's so not a, too far off. I mean, in, yeah. in the, in the same realm of, uh, of, of kind of the overall price point. So so, so that's just, I guess, a reference in terms of, you know, we didn't need the unit count to be a hundred plus for it to make sense for us to bring it in house. So me and a business partner of mine who I've worked on a couple of deals with, um, we were like, you know, let's go find someone to run the day to day here. We'll give them some equity and we'll start this company and we'll have a better control in our own management. You know, I, I was relatively happy with the management company that I had. Um, right. but there was, but I knew that I could do some things better, obviously internally. Um, and we saw, a, a vast opportunity in the market in terms of offering third-party services um, nice. because company we worked with like just wasn't doing any outbound sales, any outbound marketing, like at all. The, you know, the, the owners were kind of very content with the portfolio that they had in their, you know, their management portfolio. And, um, and we said, we can offer a similar service, if not better. And, you know, we can grow the company more quickly. There's a, there's an opportunity here. So that was really the reasoning. So we, we found an individual, brought him on, um, to, to, to act as the day-to-day manager and to be the initial sales guy. And, um, and we just had networks in the, in the, in the area. So it's, you know, we kind of started shopping it out to investors we knew who owned property and, you know, started signing contracts with third-party owners. And, um, you know, right now it's, it's certainly not a profit center, if anything, you know, cause we just funded it and, you know, we've, we've kind of written, uh, we've written the checks to get it started and we haven't really seen much come back yet, but sure. but we can see it getting to the breaking or to the inflection point of, okay, this will be a nice annualized kind of payment for us. Um, that's pretty consistent and it, uh, it adds value to our core business. Um, and the other piece of it was, you know, the, the goal is always, especially in multifamily, you just want to build relationships with the investors and the owners um, and just stay top of mind as someone that buys or is active in the business. So for us, you know, we are looking at it as a lead generation source as well. Um, cause we know, you know, principals that run other management companies that are buying their clients buildings when they're looking to sell. And, um, and, and that's become a great, you know, 
acquisition source for them. So that was always an ancillary benefit that, that we thought would be of, of, uh, of kind of value when we started it. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that's such a long-term play to have a management company as an acquisition <laughs> avenue, but it, it, totally, it, long -term, yeah. it totally works. I mean, if you've managed somebody's asset for two years and you've done well and that relationship is solid. Um, yeah. If, if, if I'm in that situation as the seller, that's going to be my first stop. If that's, if that's going to be a painless transaction, absolutely. You know, I think what I've seen in multifamily with the larger stuff is it's, it's certainty of execution. Number one, on the sale and then price and then terms, you know, and it's, it's not yeah. always, the, it's not always the price, you know, you need a buyer that can execute. And so if that trust level is there, um, that's, that's number one. So I love it. I think that's a great, great strategy. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's a good point that you made certainty of execution. I mean, I think that what rides along, you know, shocking along with that, at least for a lot of the investors that I know and, and I've bought property from is, there's a value to the ease of the whole transaction. Like if you can remove all the moving parts of having to go out and find a broker, they have to spend two, three weeks putting together an operating or a, an offering memorandum and send it out. And then, you know, they got to show it to a bunch of buyers and they got, you know, they have to coordinate with the management company. You know, that's, we're talking weeks and weeks of, of Oh yeah. And, and a lot of phone calls, a lot of time. And if, you know, some owners, you know, that I've bought property from their real estate's not their core business. You know, they're out, they have a, they have another business. They have a, you know, a W-2 that pays them well and they own a portfolio of properties on the side where they've had management and they're not interested in, you know, if the, so long as the price isn't offensive and it's something that they're willing to live with, you know, if you can give them an easy transaction, there's a lot of value there. And already being the person that knows the property and is, you know, has a relationship with them, I, you know, there's certainly value to that. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, selling a multifamily property is a lot of brain damage for everybody involved. <laughs> yeah. And every, every seller owner's got a number, you know, and you can hit their number and take away all that pain. That's the name of the game. I love it. Mm -hmm. So what type of, um, are you guys, uh, you know, now kind of years into it, starting the management company, are you syndicating deals? Is it just a, a joint venture with a handful of uh, core investors or how, how do you approach your, your kind of your capital stack on these projects? Sure. So for the first 90% of the deals I did, it was, it was just me. It was just me on the title and, um, you know, there was really no intentionality behind that outside of, I didn't really have a, a lot of investors that were willing to invest, you know, in the form of equity rather than just be private lenders. So, sure. so for me, it was just me buying them. Um, it's really just been the last, you know, nine, 10 months, you know, beginning of this year where I was, uh, I was started placing a, a, you know, more significant focus on raising money from others. And, um, you know, in terms of the format, you know, joint ventures has been what I've historically done, you know, myself, two, three other investors, you know, filling out the capital stack. Yep. Um, you know, the deals haven't been really large enough to justify the legal cost of a syndication. And, you know, we're getting to that point now where we're looking at some stuff locally, that's 30, 40 units, um, you know, three, $4 million purchase price where, you know, there's enough kind of meat on that bone to hire an attorney to justify syndication. Right. But historically six to 15 unit deals, you know, that just aren't, you know, we're talking purchase prices, 500 K to a million bucks, you know, million two, you can do that with three investors and just put together an LLC operating agreement. And, you know, we structure it similar to how syndicators structure their deals where we do, you know, some kind of a preferred return, some kind of a split. And, uh, and we just manage it, you know, on our ends as the GPs or on my end as the GP, if I'm the GP on the deal. So, you know, the question for me was early on, like, how do I want to get into this side of the business? You know, the capital raising in the form of equity side of the business, because that's a, it's a whole different business. It is. Um, yeah. It's, it's entirely different. So for me, I was saying, 
you know, let's, let's do some smaller deals where we can just do it with an LLC operating agreement where there's three of us on the, you know, in the deal. Um, I want to do it on a small scale where the dollar, the checks are smaller. I know that like, I know I can execute on a eight unit deal in my local market. I can do that in my sleep. I can find those deals and, and that's on autopilot. And um, you know, I want to deliver some solid returns and understand this side of the business, the investor relations side of the business, the actual process of raising the money, you know, funding uh, in terms of uh, getting a loan with there's when there's other people, you know, associated in, with the deal, all those things that are different, you know, than if you were to just do a deal yourself. So for me, I wanted to do it on a small scale. And now that we've done a few deals like that, and, you know, we've made a lot of investors really happy in terms of the returns, um, you know, we're looking to do it on a larger scale. So syndications is probably something that's coming up or a syndication, you know, or a deal that uh, where we syndicate will probably be the next six to 12 months. Um, whether it's locally or out of state, you know, likely locally, but, uh, but I kind of wanted to walk before I ran in that, in that field. Yeah. I think that's hugely important. Um, and I, I love the LLC partnership and it's so simple. You, you, you're, you're growing beyond your own um, kind of capital contribution. So you can get a, a little bit bigger deal done. And really, you know, there's not mechanically a whole lot different if you got three partners or 15 investors, I mean, you're going to structure, you're going to structure the, your attorney's going to structure the legal a little bit different. You're going to file a, a form D with, uh, with the SEC or the attorney is, but you've kind of, you've already done it. Um, yeah. And, and I, I couldn't agree more. There's this element of kind of proving it to yourself and proving it to the world at a certain, certain level before kind of going into the, to the next, um, to the next size property. So I love it. I mean, real estate, I love your story because uh, you know, you start with property in college and now you're talking about syndicating these, these bigger projects a handful of years later. And um, that's, that's on the table. That's, that's out there for people to go do if they're, if they're hungry enough. Right. Exactly. And, um, and for me, you know, I, I, it's funny, I would consider myself a significantly, you know, risk averse person, despite mm -hmm. the fact that I was like buying a number of properties with private lending and 10% interest rates. And, you know, like that to a lot of people is very risky, right? And, and there is inherent risk in doing that and, and scaling, you know, with that, uh, with that model. But for me, I've been very, very risk averse in terms of partnering and, and bringing other people's money into the into the equation, right? So like, I never wanted to be someone that was raising money before I was like, absolutely certain that I could, that I could, you know, execute on a deal. So, yep. you know, for me doing a deal in the market that we buy up in New Hampshire, like I, I know the, I know the market, like the back of my hand, I know the price points, like the back of my hand, I know all the key players and all the people that I need on the team in order to, you know, to make it happen. And um, so for me, I wanted to wait until I really had a great handle on that. Um, you know, I was never interested in, in just doing a bigger deal because, you know, I heard that you could do it on a you know podcast and, and just go out and just do it and go, you know, start go find a 20 unit deal. And after I've only done a few and I, I, I never really got my mind around that. And maybe that, you know, caused me to grow a little bit more slowly. Um, but that was always so important for me. And, uh, and now I look back at the few deals we've done with equity investors and, you know, we've like delivered on our year five projections on, you know, month 18 and we're, and it's like, okay, maybe I was a little too nervous about this, but, but that was always a hurdle for me was, was getting past that mental block of like, all right, you know, I really want to have everything kind of figured out and all my ducks in a row. And, and that's why, you know, when we go out of state, I think, you know, the, those first deals we do, those, you know, 30, 40 unit deals that we're going to do when we go out of state. And those are all going to be, you know, my money and my business partner's money. I don't want to raise money for my first deal going out of state, you know, because 
I don't feel comfortable doing that. So, you know, it'll probably be a simple joint venture, me, him, maybe another investor that we, that we know who already invests in that market. And, uh, you know, once I have a better story to go and bring to someone locally and say, Hey, you know, we've bought 50 units in this market. You know, this has been the story of this deal, how we've executed, how we found it, you know, and basically be able to actually give with some certainty to an investor that, you know, I can deliver on a deal like this rather than just, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about investing in a new market. Do you want to, do you want to go on this journey with me initially? Right. That's not something that I was comfortable with. So, you know, I, I think it relates to, uh, I think it's important to do your own deals first and, you know, without stepping on a soapbox, right? Like I do your own deals and, and understand, at least understand your markets so thoroughly that when you bring other people in, you know, you're not putting them in a bad spot. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I had a similar path with doing a lot of single family projects and then doing a six unit by myself. Cause I just, and that's really what you want to hear from an operator is that, yeah. you know, Taking other people's money is kind of the highest form of, of concern, I think, you know, as an operator, it's like, uh, you know, we, we've got to be able to deliver or over deliver our projections here. And if that means taking a few years to go out and do smaller deals and make sure you feel good about it. Um, I kind of had a similar experience, you know, it's like, I don't think I need to needed to go through all that on that six unit. It was a lot of work and, yeah. and everything, but that's what I had to do for myself before I could raise capital on, on larger multifamily deals. It's just, it's just what I had to do to be comfortable. And I think that's what you want to hear from an operator uh, is to kind of prove out the model first. And um, you know, if you do that and you put your investors first, then, then you can kind of grow it as much as you, as much as you want to in the future. That's really what people want to hear. Yeah. And, and I think that it's so important to, to understand that like, to put yourself in a passive investor's shoes, right? Like if I was going to go passively invest in a deal, do I, you know, if I'm going to invest with an operator who is going out into a new market for the first time, who hasn't bought property there, you know, unless there's some real compelling reason, like this is an individual that owns 3000 units in other markets. And we understand that they under, you know, know the business, right. You know, let's, maybe we put that aside, but if they're someone who's in my position, maybe they own a, you know, even a couple hundred units locally, it's still, there's still so much that goes into, you know, doing something out of state um, in terms of, buying some kind of a distressed building, a value add property, executing the business plan, making sure you get all your numbers right along the way and all your assumptions are correct. I, I'll probably just go invest with somebody else that's already, already owns property there. Um, so that's, I mean, that's how I would view it as a passive investor. So I'm, you know, as someone who's going to go speak with passive investors, I, I try and keep that in mind. And, you know, yeah, you're right. You probably don't have to spend three years doing your own business locally, but I think the conversation, if you're talking to an investor about a local project versus an out-of-state project is so different, at least in my own personal experience. And maybe Agreed. others have had different experiences with that. But, you know, if I, I can probably, I probably could have raised money for local deals years ago. And, you know, the, the psychological hurdle of an investor being able to drive by the property, like uh, the, or a passive investor being able to drive by the property and see it and, you know, really understand, you know, maybe they have a better idea of what the rents are in the, the area. Maybe they understand the market better. They're like, oh, that's by, you know, so-and-so high school. Oh, I like that area. I understand that. But going out of state is just such a different animal to, to comprehend for a lot of folks. So for me, it's like, let me just prove that I've done it and can do it. And then I'll go and have that conversation. 
Yeah, I love it. I think that's a great approach. We, we've kind of taken the same approach in that all our stuff's in our backyard. I feel more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always telling investors to go <laughs> go to the property or set up a tour. Nobody really does, but I think they they there's that level of comfort there, especially you know for folks that are a lot of kind of first time passive investors. You know, yeah. they they understand at a high level you got income and expenses and cash flow, and, and we're going to make some improvements, but uh, they they may not have. A lot of experience with it beyond that so having that local uh, comfort there is strong but i think that's a great model go go prove it in another market first you know there's inevitably going to be some uh learning and, and tweaking and, and improving and iterating along the way and then and then you just grow it so that's that's exciting stuff um well congratulations axel on your you know starting this business from nothing and growing it to where it is today. I think there's exciting stuff in the future for you guys. If somebody wants to reach out and connect and kind of get in touch with your company, what's a good avenue for that? Sure. So uh, probably the best place is to just, you know, email me would be one. It's uh, Axel, A-X-E-L at Brickleaf Properties, B-R-I-C-K-L-E-A-F properties.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm really active on there and try and put up a lot of helpful content there. And that's at multifamily wealth. And um, I got a podcast myself, the multifamily wealth podcast. Um, just bring on folks that are doing big things in multifamily. And I was going to ask you after the show, but I'll, I'll have to get you on there, Devin, at some point. I'd love to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, you guys are, or you specifically would be a perfect guest for it. Um, so any of those three places, I mean, you know, and just Google my name. There's not too many Axel Ragnarsons running around. So I'm sure you'll find some way to contact me. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening to this on a, on a, you know, your, your podcast app, um, don't do it while you're driving in the car, but you, yeah. the, we'll, we'll uh, have the link right there below the description. So be sure to reach out and connect with Axel. Um, awesome. Thanks so much for coming on and wish you, wish you guys could continue success. Absolutely. I appreciate the invite and uh, we'll chat soon. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.